Hello everyone, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This is part five of the series called About Uranus. The bets we place on the roulette wheel result in different patterns and outcomes. This occurs for individuals, and the same happens for nations. The answer you choose to the question of one god, no god, or many gods dramatically alters your destiny. Depending on your choice, the heroes become different. The goals change. The heroes of ancient Greece, Odysseus and Achilles, are unlike the heroes of Israel, Moses and David. The foundation story of Rome through the founder Romulus and his twin brother Remus, who he killed, is very unlike the founder of Christianity, a carpenter named Jesus. The story that gives structure to your life or nation guides choices towards different ends. Our selected worldview leads to various pathways because the decision tree steers us in different directions that we cannot revert from or modify easily. It's like a train switching tracks as it leaves the station. Once on the wrong track and moving, it's not easy to undo. The belief in one God leads to a, leads to a very different path for Israel than that of Babylon or Egypt. The Hebrews openly reject all other gods like Baal and Zeus and Marduk or Ra. Uh, they declare them all to be false gods. Likewise, they don't believe that human emperors like Ramses or Caesar Augustus are actual deities. They don't believe in a pantheon of many gods. Their entire worldview centers around one creator God and not on any sub-deities. In other words, they have not abandoned the first god. All of the surrounding cultures tell the stories about how the first primordial god or gods were killed or rendered impotent, um, like exactly like Uranus, and that is the main point of contention and separation between these worlds. So none of this is hidden from us, as I've mentioned in the past episodes. The mythologies of ancient cultures tell these stories of how the first god or gods died, or like I said, were put on the bench. Hesiod's Works and Days is a famous um, ancient myth uh, book of mythology that tells how Uranus or Oranos was replaced. Egyptian tales explain how Osiris was overthrown. Um, these cultures have abandoned the idea of one God, and that's exactly why Israel is alone. They're different. They're set apart. And yes, they're chosen because they have chosen the one God, and the one God has chosen them. In fact, they are the only ones that have chosen that at all. So anyone that likes mythology already knows these stories. Uh, a lot of kids know these stories through uh, the Rick Riordan series, series of books. Um, so I'm not stumbling onto something secret or esoteric. In the myths, chaos is almost always the starting point um, or in some version of the starting point, uh, which is a condition that any parent uh, chaos is something everyone is familiar with, whether you're a parent or an artist or an office manager or a software architect. Uh, they're all well aware of this chaos, this idea of chaos. Uh, we all have a feeling we know what it is. We can all relate to this idea of a shapeless mess or mass of uh, emptiness. There's a watery nothing, um, which is sometimes called a chasm or a void or disorder. You may think of it as something like the upside down in the mind of Eleven in Stranger Things, where she's standing in this empty space, there's nothing around her. And then out of the chaos 
what we have, you have some kind of creation story. Um, in the with the many gods, you get the family tree, and then follows the saga of the gods with entire genealogies and and really top notch treachery. And um, you know they're always stabbing each other in the back. There's rebellion among the children of the initial gods that explain the past and the present state right up to the current state of the world. And so when Israel is writing its story of salvation history, so are the Greeks and others, since writing has suddenly become possible. Um, and that's, you know, it's curious is that as they're writing this, the only people who don't have a hierarchy or genealogy of gods and goddesses is the Hebrew people. Every other group has plowed the initial God under the earth into the past, um, while the Bible declares him to be alive. So they alone have held a candle for the one true God in the mind of humanity when all the others have declared him snuffed out. This is what makes the Hebrews so different, that they are not like any other people. They do not and will not bow to any other God. They, they won't play nice just to get along, and they reject the myths as mere stories. And if there is only one God, all of these myths and stories are just that. They're just stories without any real power, just like a object that they might make sacrifices to is also powerless. So why would this matter? Uh, who cares? Uh, why, can't they, why can't they just get along and pour out a little liquor for these other gods? Well, it's because they can't. So if they play along, it blows out the candle. So it makes an enormous difference in meaning, meaning to them about who and what God is, what the idea of God means, and how we are to interact or worship that God. Um, having only one God makes every other God into an idol, a false God, and reading the Bible, you can see how that irritates and enrages the surrounding culture, cultures. And why does it irritate them? Because the Hebrews won't bow or bend to any of these myths, it means they're not bowing to the people of the powers of those states or cities or groups of people. So rest assured that no one today or in the ancient world enjoys mockery or belittlement of that which gives them purpose. In fact, you can see that on social media where the things that are outlawed are those things that are now considered sacred and they don't want to hear them. So they, they cut off people's accounts thinking that they just like disappear um, from the world, which is um, not how it works, but it's kind of interesting that that's the idea. Um, I, I don't care what era you lived in or who you are or how your sense of meaning comes about, but if someone or some group tries to tell you that the centerpiece of your life, the meaning of your life is false, then anger will result. That's guaranteed. There's hardly a person alive today who can stand strong when their purpose or sense of meaning is mocked or called out as a joke. Um, hence, the chosen people in choosing to follow the first God, the one God, they are hated throughout history because they will not bend to the world around them and they will call these sub-gods uh, what they are, which is false. They will, And they won't say that it's equal to their God because they can't. The lesser gods are not worthy of worship to them. That's what irritates them. You can, you can absolutely see this today if someone... Um, tells you something and you say, I don't believe that, uh, they will get very enraged. There's certain topics, especially, that uh, will really fire people up. Like if you, um, if well, we don't, that's another episode we'll get to later. But So this leads to a whole can of worms being opened because if you read the Old Testament with this understanding, it shines a light on many stories. The hostile world that Abraham lives in begins to make sense when you see the conflict 
when you see how deep and fundamental this division is between them and the surrounding cultures. And why are the others so angry? Why are the events so weird and violent? Well, they're living in, the Hebrews are living in a time when their tradition is the only odd one out. Um, they're the only one that cannot and will not adapt. So to the rest of the world, they have chosen to go backwards. So uh, for polytheistic cultures of many gods to offer prayer or sacrifice to another city's god or to another group's deity is really not a big deal. It's not a problem because the, the reason why they can do that is because their concept of God is very small. So if, Ath if Athens can have a patron god and Corinth can have a different one, then the power of a god is quite limited. So like Athens, you know, obviously had Athena and Cor Corinth, I believe, was Poseidon because they were a port city. So visitors could go to either place and worship or sacrifice without betraying their home team. So they can make offerings and pray for sweet deals when they go to Corinth. Um, this is what is meant by when in Rome, do as the Romans. You just fall in the line. And the reason why the Israelites don't fit in is because they're not, they are not willing to do that. And as I've said before, it's not like the, uh, all of the Israelites were this way, but there were certain people who definitely were, would not do it, which would fire up their enemies a great deal. It's easy to fit in with the local people if you don't mock or belittle the hometown god or team. So I'm sure there were cities like Philadelphia back then where even if you didn't mock the hometown Eagles, the NFL team, uh, the drunk locals might still have beaten you up just for representing another place. So however, in a world of many gods, it's not the end of the world to change your allegiance. So uh, like any timid Minnesota Vikings fan uh, who goes out east, you could get through um, an ancient Philadelphia by faking your fandom and maybe even wear like an Eagles jersey for the day, just for the day, without feeling like you'd betrayed the Vikings franchise. The Vikings, after all, we all know, will break our hearts come December. So to deny them in public and trade for saving myself a black eye, that's okay. Um, denying the Minnesota Vikings is not the same as denying the foundation that gives meaning to life. So for Israel, uh, this cannot be done, though. Um, they cannot put on a Philadelphia Eagles jersey just for the day to avoid getting a black eye um, at, a, at a football game from a bunch of drunk Eagles fans. So there can be no worship of any of these small gods because it immediately disrespects and dethrones the one god from the highest place. The stakes are much higher than Monday Night Football. The, the many gods, uh, places where they worship many gods, they've already dethroned the one god, and they have no qualms inserting and dropping gods like rows in a database. It's not that big a deal because it's kind of like half taken seriously, half not. Um, obviously, there were people who took it very seriously, but it's not the same thing when you can see the city over here has a different God than we do. Um, everyone has a different name and different. there's so many of them. Um, but Israel will not do that for any of the cities. And thus this problem exists, this rift um, and division. Uh, as long as they maintain that there's only one God, they cannot worship any other God because to do so destroys their entire worldview. And in other words, how they derive meaning from existence is directly opposed to the surrounding world, which puts them always at odds with their neighbors. They have no choice but to call the Philadelphia Eagle what it is, an idol. This makes the choice to worship the one God a demanding and difficult way of life. 
It's not like being a Minnesota Vikings fan is very challenging. I can go buy a jersey and turn on the TV, and by that act alone, I'm a member of the club of the Minnesota Vikings fandom world, um, for better or worse in this case. But um, one thing I will say for Eagles fans is that they actually seem willing to die for the team, and not only through self-inflicted alcohol poisoning, but by maybe by actual human sacrifice. Uh, or maybe I'm just still bitter over the 2018 uh, beatdown that the Vikings took from them, uh, from the Eagles in the NFC Championship game, um, having come off riding this high of the Minneapolis Miracle the week before when the debacle happened when uh, the, the Vikings went to Philadelphia. But I'm a fair weather fan anyway, and I personally think the sports obsession in America is a symptom that is preceding a major illness uh, to come. And I've only picked the Eagles because it's fun, because um, I know how um, crazy their fans are, and uh, they make a good example for what I'm talking about here. So the Hebrews, however, they make the Eagles fans look like fair weather fans. You can see this in many stories where the Israelites will not bend a knee to the false gods. And in the book of Daniel, one of my favorites of the entire Bible is when King Nebuchadnezzar has built a giant gold statue and he wants everyone to pay homage and worship it. I can laugh now because it's so long ago, but I guarantee you no one was laughing at his giant gold statue. Um, he calls in all the nations and the cultures for the day of dedication and everyone falls in line. Everyone Oh, of course, wait, nope, someone doesn't fall in line. It's just these Jewish representatives. They are not falling in line. They're not going to worship the statue. Why? And why can't these three guys just toe the line? Why do they have to rock the boat of Nebuchadnezzar? It's his big day, his big statue. Well, they don't worship his gold statue because they can't. Or they could do it, but they won't. And if they do, they've rejected the one true God. If they do, then they have abandoned their faith. Um, if they do worship this, his statue, then their lives lose all meaning because they know that the one true God is the truth. Thus, there is nothing more precious and worthy than keeping faithful to the one true God. Not to mention, there is very good precedence in the book of Exodus for why golden statues should not be worshipped since the whole golden calf incident ended up with a lot of corpses. And those involved had to literally drink the melted and powderized metal calf as punishment. Um, so yeah, you don't, you don't worship golden statues. So uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is told this. Uh, he's told, they will not worship your God uh, and they will not worship the golden statue which you set up. <laughs> There's The three Israelites just won't do it. So the king is livid. You know, he does not obviously like to be told no. He's the, this is one of the most powerful people in the world of the era. So it would be like Putin or Biden or someone like that. Um, with a lot more ability to just say off with your head. Uh, he orders the three men to be burned in a furnace. And he demands that the furnace be stoked up to the highest level of heat possible. And he, I think he says like seven times hotter than normal. So he gives the three dissidents a chance to change their mind while he's stoking up the furnace, but they refuse. Uh, they respond with one of the ultimate comebacks in execution history as they tell the king, and I'm using my own translation here, which is just me paraphrasing. And he says, they say, our God may save us, but just so you know, even if he doesn't, we don't really care, uh, but we will never worship your stupid statue. 
and so it's a really badass tale because we like badass tales um and that's what usually you have in stories where people stand up for the truth and this is the stuff of legend these three men are saying go ahead and kill us your god's a fake uh, yeah, we may burn, but we'd rather we won't die as apostates. Like I don't, I'd rather die here today than to worship your stupid statue. So then Nebuchadnezzar grows even more angry and has them thrown into the furnace. But what happens? They do not burn. So the the furnace is is stoked, uh, but they're inside the furnace and something is like shielding them from the fire. Uh, the book reads, and this is now not my translation. Uh, that they walked about in the flames, singing to God and blessing the Lord. So they're inside the furnace, singing and blessing the Lord. Uh, they're acting like it was a warm shower. Uh, something or someone has interceded or, or blocked the fire, uh, but it says that the fire in no way touched them or caused them pain or harm. So they sing this long song, worshiping God, the one God. There's, there's the words in the book of their song. And, uh, and then the best part of the story arrives. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar goes and looks into the furnace, and he sees these three men walking around in the fire. But there's another person. There's not three people. There's four. There's a fourth body standing in the furnace. So this is a big furnace, obviously. But something strange is happening. A fourth person or being is inside the furnace. And the king says, I see four men unbound and unhurt walking in the fire. And the fourth looks like a son of God. Uh, we don't find out who the fourth person or angel or being was. But there is a lot of speculation if you want to research it. Um, you know, obviously there's speculation that it's uh, Jesus or God. It's, it's something protecting these three men. Um, and the three men then are, are ordered to come out of the furnace and they emerge unburnt and not even smelling of fire. It's like they were not even near a fire. So this leads to a kind of conversion for King Nebuchadnezzar as he's so shocked and amazed. Um, he then gives orders that everyone, everyone must now praise the Most High God, the One God, going so far to add that anyone who disrespects the one God of these three uh, uh, Hebrews shall be cut to pieces and his house made into a refuse heap, for there is no other God who can rescue like this. So <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar is still uh, of the many God persuasion, but this sign of rescue has blown his mind so much that no one is allowed to say anything bad about uh, the one God of the, the Jewish people, which is just interesting. He's not really fully converted, uh, but he is convinced there is power in this. And that's what he, of course, respects the most is power because that's what he has. Uh, his golden statue is an emblem of his own power and a projection of it to the people. So, so this example in Daniel shows what the chosen people are facing and how their declaration of faith enrages the world around them when they carry it out. So it's one thing to say it and another to do it. The chosen people are set apart because they are attempting to re-enthrone the one true God. The lesser gods are, of course, all false, so they can never defeat the real God in battle. So what happens then is the demons and the lesser gods, they have only taken over power of the minds of men, but they have no true power. And so this is why um, lesser gods and demons are said to attack humans like fallen spirits 
it is the only way that they can gain power. So, uh, you know, believing in spirits, they cannot defeat God, but they can corrupt what God loves, which is his creation. So that's you and me. Uh, to say that God is, to say that a, uh, a God is powerless, like uh, Nebuchadnezzar's statue, a lowercase g God, will also enrage those who elevate lower and invented gods. So this would be like going into a diehard Green Bay Packers fan, his basement, where he's collected years of posters and ticket stubs and team souvenirs and signed jerseys and then telling him the Packers suck. Like if you went and did that in his basement, in his shrine to his football team, which is literally like a religious shrine, and I've seen these places, um, it's going to sting. It's going to sting a lot. And it's not how you win friends and influence people. And so that's kind of what this story in Daniel is doing, where these people are uh, saying this golden statue is ridiculous. But um, if you stick with the one God and you tell people that whatever they elevate to give them meaning in life is a false God, you are inviting conflict, hatred, and wrath. Uh, the story in Daniel kind of sums up the problem with why there are so many difficulties and wars in the Old Testament. Um, the, what they have chosen is a path of difficulty, a tradition that has been left behind by other cultures. Uh, if you consider the story in Daniel in comparison to the story of Odysseus, the Greek hero, uh, their way of interacting with the world between them could not be more different. I mean, Odysseus is a great character. Uh, the reason everybody still loves the story today for many, many reasons, but um, he's a great character because he slips through tricky situations. Odysseus adapts and maneuvers to make his way home to Ithaca. Um, he is not worried about changing his views to survive. He's a survivor. Um, Odysseus is like a chameleon who can say whatever is needed to survive the day. And that's why we love him as a character. Um, and a lot of TV shows have Odysseus type characters because they're kind of slippery. They're clever. They're cool. Um, and that's why we haven't stopped talking about him for uh, thousands of years. Like, I mean, he's like um, talked about as long as Abraham. So, um, but Odysseus is, is cool. Abraham doesn't have this like cool quality. So um, it's an interesting thing. Very different. And Odysseus even kind of, um, he's kind of like this, the shiny one in the Garden of Eden a little bit. He, he will, uh, when he's faced with difficult situation, he shifts. He will change. He slithers. And the opening line of the Odyssey has very, various translations. Um, but there's one by a, a translator named Robert Fagels that I really like. And this is the opening line of the Odyssey. And it says, Sing to me of the man Muse, the man of twists and turns, driven time and again off course. Um, so Odysseus, uh, just that the man of twists and turns. Uh, he's a man that can change quickly to ride out the days of this crazy world. Like various successful salespeople I've interacted with, Odysseus sees a setback as an opportunity, and the truth is always kind of fuzzy and gray. Um, he's like Pontius Pilate saying, what is truth? Um, I get the sense that Pontius Pilate had some of the same attributes of Odysseus, uh, because when beset with trouble at Jesus' trial, he's trying to maneuver to save himself, and he wants to preserve his image and um, keep his power. And better yet, when when Pilate hears Jesus talking about the idea of truth, he gives that telling answer, uh, the answer that betrays his worldview. 
And of course, that's when Pilate says to him, well, then are you a king? He says to Jesus and Jesus answers, you say I am a king. Uh, for this I was born and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And that is like the odyssey. There's a slippery truth. Um, he does what he needs to get home. And then he asserts his power and um, his truth is what he says it is. So this to me is the root issue that the chosen people are constantly fighting. And it is that of sticking to the one God. Because once you depart from the truth of the one God, then you can begin to dabble around in declaring anything to be true, like Nebuchadnezzar's uh, golden statue. Odysseus isn't terribly concerned with what is true unless it helps him get what he wants. <laughs>